the 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 notion of a spiritual veil is a Victorian thing. That is a Victorian invention. Uh, we cannot see any idea like this in pre-Christian, pre-Victorian times. Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of a sacred fire, where speakers gather to share their wisdom and insights. Creating a sacred space where all are welcome to warm their hands, here are your hosts, Caitlin Stormbreaker, Sarenth Odinson, and Jim Two Snakes, discuss spirituality, mythology, animism, and culture around a virtual sacred fire. Welcome. 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 Won't you join us around Grandfather Fire? Spring has come. The seeds are planted. The rains are falling. The mayflies are flying and the fishes are fed. Our waters are full and flowing as we bring ourselves through this beautiful season, this welcoming rush of new green, of new buds, of new animals, of new plants. We all rush outside to feel the sun on our skin. Welcome to the new growth, the new life, and the new sights that have come. Spring has come, and those seeds you planted before, let them rise above and seek out the sun. Let them grow to fruition in the seasons that may come. Spring has sprung. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode 111. I'm Jim Two Snakes, joined, as always, by my good friends and co-hosts, Aaron Thodenson, Caitlin Stormbreaker, and Nick's the Cat's Tail. <laughs> it's making an appearance for the opening prayer. For anybody that has the video of this, this is a, we had a kitty cameo. Yeah, it's it has been a rare occurrence since she's been a co-host with me, but apparently her uh, camera shyness has gone away, and now she's back. <laughs> and now you get his tail, so. And she's the prettiest kitty. She is the bestest kitty. <laughs> we got periscope tail on the, on the yep. video. There we go. So how are you both doing? Uh, doing really good. I'm actually the the prayer was kind of inspired by a set of seeds that I planted from last year that I didn't have a chance to get into the ground. So they were kind of experimental. I wasn't sure if they were actually going to come up or not, but uh, through very gentle coaxing and some prayers and some blessed water, um, they're actually growing which is incredible because usually seeds, especially vegetable seeds, they're a little questionable a year after the season they've been released. So I was like, well, you know, I'll just put these in pots and see what happens. And well, they all are growing. So now I've got to find spots for them. (laughs) Yeah. We, we've been kind of working a little bit on, we just got a, 
new rototiller. And so it's kind of like, what do we want to put in right now? What are we going to wait on? What's, but we've been too busy to worry about it overly much anyway. So <laughs> it is what it is. Which I, I, there, uh, he's not a sponsor of our show, but uh, I do want to plug someone's YouTube channel who Matt and I absolutely adore. Um, it's called Crime Pays, but Botany Doesn't. And it's this, <laughs> this uh, Italian American awesome. uh, from Chicago. So he has a very relatively thick accent and no filter whatsoever. <laughs> um, and basically taught himself botany uh, from being a train conductor for 15 years. So while he was conducting the train, he would read about plants. And then at his stops, he would get off and go try and find those plants out at the these rail yards and oh, that's awesome surrounding wilderness. And he's incredible and the most wonderful ADD brain that you will ever witness. And it's just he's he's amazing. So go check out his stuff. He's on Instagram <laughs> and YouTube and all that stuff. But fair warning, he's not kid friendly. <laughs> but. Yeah, he's he's awesome. How about you, Sarah? Uh, between work and special studies, I've been keeping busy. All right. Um, honestly, the biggest thing that's been on my plate, besides just going to work, uh. Baby girl came down with a little bit of sickness, mm. so taking care of her. Daddy got lots of cuddles today, so that was cool. Um, I don't know. There's there's something about your kid being sick that can make you either feel like a superhero or like a total piece of shit because there's nothing you can do except for get right. them through it. Yeah. Um, I'm just grateful to Adam Mingloth and and all the wonderful doctors, nurses, and staff and scientists that have come before that we have access to so much medicine right as uh yeah the, the stuff she's dealt with this year is just if we hadn't had antibiotics it would have been just a bear right right so um a lot of the stuff that i'm working on between uh every other week doing say their work um, i'm also taking time out more often now to actually go outside and sit in nature just to sit um commune with the spirits maybe have a pipe and just have that have that time and have that space and that's been really soul fulfilling um something that also it's on my docket that i kind of have to do now because for a couple of years i've been meaning to learn because the fire spirits wanted me to learn a while ago how to do a, a bow drill well, now I've more or less been threatened. You must learn bow drill, or something that you don't want to burn is going to burn. So get with it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, threatening you with arson. I mean, kind of. Yeah, either you set the fire, or we will choose where the fire is set. Pretty much. So, I mean, and, and I've been I've been dicking around and dragging my my not dragging my heels because I have wanted to learn bow drill. I've saved enough damn survivalist and type stuff from TikTok to fill a <laughs> computer. So I think that by now I should be able to do it. Um, my problem is, is that I'm not any good at constructing the materials for it yet, but they don't care about that. They just want me to do the damn thing. So I bought a kit online. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and when, when I did that, you know, originally I was like, well, this kind of feels like cheating, but I'm like, but my first fire steel kit, you know, all of my fire steel kits were either gifted or bought. So it's right, not like, right. what the fuck am I worrying about? I don't know. It's, it's something funny how that kind of crops up every now and again, that, that feeling of, am I cheating? Damn uh, religious guilt anyway. Right. Right. Like if you can't make it yourself, store-bought is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. yeah, if you can't summon Hellfire, Storbot is fine. <laughs> so uh, that's funny. Well, I mean, they care about if I learn the technique and I do it in a sacred way. They don't care whether or not I hand for- forge these materials. And like, nah, nah, dog. Right. Just just learn the right. damn thing. And and the thing is, you will be able to eventually. You you have to understand the mechanics of it first, and it's better to use something that is tailored specifically to that task. Right. Instead of trying to figure it out on your own from the get-go. I mean, you have the the machinations of doing it the correct way right now, so might as well. Right. And then worry about handcrafted things later. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like, there was, this was never a big concern when I was doing Flint and Steel. I think it's just because I've watched so many survivalist videos on how to find <laughs> your own shit that I'm like, man, to do this right, maybe I should go find my own stuff. No, no. Yes, you must you must dig the iron and create the forge and cast the steel. And you know if I had the space and availability, I'd probably fucking do it because you probably would, yes. Oh, that sounds like that sounds like fun. <laughs> but I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> sounds like way too much work for me. That's fair. <laughs> So how oh, yeah, you, I can totally see how oh. other, I mean, honestly, I could see where that would be enjoyable to people. I know people that are of the right mindset where that probably does sound like a lot of fun. So I, uh, I, I've watched a lot of, uh, I think it's called primitive technology where mm-hmm. the guy basically hand builds all his own shit. I think he lives in the Pacific Northwest. He's got a book out now. I love watching his stuff. It's very meditative. He doesn't talk. It's Everything that he wants to t- t- tell you about how he does what he does, it's in the captions. So you have to kick the captions on. I didn't know this for the first couple of hours of video. I just thought it was just Azimer survivalist dude. Until I went and read the description and went, oh, shit, he's actually talking to you the whole time. <laughs> just quietly uh, and you'll never know. <laughs> this is funny to me because like. Other people, Sarah, might say, I watched a few minutes before I realized you were like, I watched a few hours before. (laughs) But I bet it was a really like calming and relaxing because it, but that's it. Those kind of videos make complete and total sense to me because that's how I learn. I mean, you can sit here and talk yourself blue in the face and tell me how to do something. But unless you're actively showing me how to do it, I'll never figure it out. So videos so, like that where somebody is just not saying anything and just showing me how to do it, I'd probably pick it up lickety split. Oh yeah. Like We're watching watching oh I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, go go for it. I'm sorry. W- watching him make shit, like just watching him walk into his local river, take a couple hand scoops handfuls of mud, separate the sediment, and then make clay and fire it. It was like, no, nah, you you follow this dude step by step, you will learn how to do this shit. What I thought was really funny, though, was I didn't even cotton on to the fact that there was, like, in the in the show description, what turned me on to the fact that he had captions that were talking the whole time was I was looking in the comments, and I couldn't figure out where their conversations with the uh, the, uh, 
the video producer were coming from. <laughs> like when, when you said blah, and I went, right. What the fuck are they talking about? I've checked my volume settings at least six right. times. He, <laughs> this motherfucker hasn't said a word that. the whole time I watched him. So, I totally yeah. get it though. Some of the some of the videos I find most relaxing are the uh, like restoration videos, restoration oh, yeah. or something like that, or ripping carpet cleaning. Have you seen? Yes. Oh, God. No, cleaning no, mine is- a throw rug. I like this is something I would. I don't even want to do it. I don't even want to do it. There's no way that looks. That is such. That is a bunch of things that I don't want to do. But I'll watch someone else do it because somehow that's relaxing. My thing is when they're uh, power washing a sidewalk. Or like a cement mm. slab and just oh, going yeah. slowly back and forth and just, oh, God, it's so satisfying. Yeah, that shit gives me the brain tingles. There's yeah. some channels where there's yep. one, at least one where the uh, landscaping guy and he just goes around and helps people out the things he needs and he takes his extra time and his extra money and he's got a landscaping service, but he'll knock on a door and say, I notice your front yard's really overgrown. Can I Can I help you out with it for free? And then the whole video is him trimming and edging and clipping pruning and it's like how is this so freaking relaxing if my neighbors are doing it it'd drive me crazy because then i gotta hear it right five states away has a gopro on and right, he's just exactly. walking around doing this and he's I'm got fine. a gopro and he's got some he's the 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 motor noises and stuff are turned way down and usually there's light music and so that's relaxing as opposed to my neighbors with their <laughs> for hours on end <laughs> and then the random cussing because they hurt themselves <laughs> <laughs> right yeah exactly i mean I, mean, I don't know why the carpet cleaning ones i love those just like how much dirt can come out of these carpets? It's like, oh uh, this, is, this is so gray, much. ugly square mm-hmm. to begin with. And it's like, there was this vibrant pattern underneath there. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I honestly. Carpets are gross. Oh, man. I, I've seen a couple of those. I think my favorite one, he actually dolled up his uh, soap machine, the one that puts all the, the soap on it and scrubs. He put made his scrubbing machine look like R2-D2. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So, you know, he already goes up a step above other YouTube channels. <laughs> Gotta love it. There was somebody that put a, a wrap on their smart car. You know, those little two-door will get blown over in a wind smart cars. They put an <laughs> R2-D2 wrap on one of those. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's it was awesome. super cute. Yeah, that I don't know. Cute. I I, I really do. They're almost, they're not quite like ASMR videos, but they're, they, they make the brain tingle in a certain special way when, you know, you've seen this like damp, like smoke damaged black carpet or this really rough overgrown patch or whatever. And then it's just, it's, ah, it's done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sounds weird, but like there's an element of hopefulness in it. But no matter how gross something is, a lot of it, a lot of times it can be made beautiful again which is i don't know it's kind of like yeah. optimistic in a way that's damn yeah i mean it, it's the the idea behind the way i believe it's the japanese fix some of their broken bowls or plates where they add uh, a gold filling yeah yep to fuse the pieces together so even though it's still technically broken or looks broken it still has an element of beauty to it so it, it's yeah, called exactly. kintsugi golden joinery yep yeah but I actually had a thought, Sarenth, about the the video that you were watching as just a, 
a meditation and didn't realize mm-hmm. that there was actual captions talking about the video. And it made me think of like, that's a really good metaphor with how some people interact with gods and spirits sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, cause sometimes it takes talking to another person or looking at someone else's interactions to understand how to, how you understand the gods and what they're saying. Otherwise it's just, you're watching a video or sometimes you're just hearing the instructions or sometimes it's just a feeling, but sometimes it takes somebody else going, Oh, this, you need to change this or turn this on or shut this off and you'll get the rest of the message or something. But I don't know. That was a brain bubble from earlier and I just had to share it. <laughs> Bubbles. I like it. <laughs> I honestly, I think that that's why it's so important to have good examples in community of what different relationships or non relationships with the Ginderegan look like, you know, and I, I think of the journey that we've all been on in different facets, you know, whether it's, um, coming into our religious paths or wandering this way, that way, or feeling fallow or disconnected, or man, maybe this, this way or that way just isn't going to work anymore. I, part of being a good example is being willing to experience the breadth and just be a good example to others. Like that for me, some of the best lessons that I've ever received have been from just watching somebody else. And sometimes that watching is, Oh, don't do that. (laughs) Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. Sometimes that watching is, wow, that's really inspiring. I think I want to try that. Yeah. When I was told, don't do that. That's what that means. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, kitty. (laughs) I got my co-host back, but that'll frustrate her. So now she's going to leave me. (laughs) Yeah, um, um, I guess returning to your question earlier, Sarah, I'm doing all right. Uh, the last couple of weeks have been just busy as all hell between yard work and work. And I had a job interview and just been. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, another job at the at the university. I don't think I'd take it even if I was offered it. But, you know, it's good to keep the interview skills sharp and, mm-hmm. and get out there. And it's like the last two weeks or so, they have been like the whipsaw of emotions. It's just been all over the place. I think the the biggest example of that was I was really having trouble staying level one day because at the I went into the, the retail part-time. And as I'm getting stuff out of my desk, the human resources manager comes up. She's like, oh, good. I've been waiting for you to get here. It's like, oh, yeah, we've made you team member of the month. Oh, that's really awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, you work really hard. You do, do this and that, and you keep track of the inventory. So we're okay, cool, cool. Less than five minutes later, I find my immediate supervisor chatting with some of my coworkers. And then they, they wanted to discuss with me a big mistake I had made the day before. Yeah. <laughs> what a roller coaster. Hi, crash. Jesus. Oh man, that was a great five minutes. Wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> But like, it seems Do- like my last dopamine, two weeks. dopamine, dopamine. Ah, oh, yeah. yeah. Seems like my last two weeks have been like that. Just so it is what it is. Yeah, I, I kind of feel that. I, man, I think something was going around or something. I don't know. 
because like a week is it a week ago what is today god what is today <laughs> the 20th may yeah, Saturday, so Saturday it would have been 20th. a little bit over a week ago a week and a day ago the uh, my stepson left for alaska and he'll be gone for four months so in We've been having challenging times with him, but I'm so proud of him for doing this. And, you know, I'm, I'm a part-time parent and I I've always, I've stood firmly within that boundary because he has two living parents and two parents that are very active in his life. So I was always kind of like the, the side character, I guess, and would come in and like kind of help support him on the, when they were done. <laughs> I'd come in and be like, okay, you know, we're good. Come on, let's get back up and keep going kind of thing. And it's just been interesting, I guess, to navigate these last, I I would say for myself, last like three months or so has been interesting and challenging in a way. But um, I have found some old tools that I thought, I didn't need anymore were still readily available to me to deal with the scars that were healed from shadow work that I have done in the past. And I I was actually given a lesson that just because the wound has healed doesn't mean that the scars never, or that the scars stop hurting, you know, they may not hurt all the time, but there will be moments where something will bump up against that old wound and you'll go, ouch, that hurt. (laughs) You'll have to kind of revert back to some older tools that you may not have use for anymore to kind of help you deal with and process that momentary bit of pain or discomfort or whatever. Um, So that, that was an interesting thing that happened to me semi recently, I guess. Yeah. And then, uh, so I might as well go ahead and talk about it. I, I think because uh, Sarenth kind of referred to it in a way, and and I honestly, to me, this is kind of like the big. This is one of those moments where I'm kind of on the nervous side, and even though I've gotten some good responses already, um, I put up a, a, a post on my fairly rarely used WordPress, and as I've been backing away from a lot of spaces and kind of allowing myself to really stop worrying about who I am to the community or what, where I fit in or who my friends are, that sort of thing. Um, I, I had a blog post. I am coming to the realization at least right now on my path as of where I've been for the last year or so, roughly, I don't think I'm a theist. So that's, I've been spending a lot of time kind of wrapping my head around that and what the implications are. So, and it's really hard because we've all had these big in-depth talks about the gods and I do believe in spirits. And I even have gotten on this show doing readings, intuitions, insights, thoughts, but I'm not sure at this point in time, how literal I find those beings as deities. So that's been something I've been working through. That's interesting. And it's a challenging 
place to be in, I think, because I, I find myself in similar shoes every couple of years. I'll I'll dip into that state of mind, that state of being. And for me, and of course I can only speak of my own experiences, it's more of a a questioning. I keep that that line that no matter how thin the thread may get, but I keep mm-hmm. that belief they're connected to the gods. Like almost like it doesn't matter whether or not they're real. So that belief can stay consistent. It can stay there. It can stay connected to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there are some things that I need to work out with myself. And I always come back to the same, I guess the same frame of mind eventually is, is it harmful to myself or to those around me for me to believe in whether or not the gods are real and Mm -hmm. either way, either answer, whether I believe in them or don't believe in them. The answer is no, it isn't harmful because I don't use my religion against other people. Right, right, right. Yeah, I get that. Yep. You know, and so that allows me the space to kind of let go of that doubt, let go of that questioning, let go of whatever it is that I I feel fracturing in that area of my life. And it gives me the freedom of, I guess, exploring myself Mm -hmm. and getting to know myself and understand my path and where I'm at. And I think it's totally natural for anybody within any religious organization, whether you're Christian, Catholic, even atheist or pagan, et cetera, um, to have fallow times like this. In fact, I think it's important. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I, I had, how I had addressed it in my blog is actually like, I I'm with you. I mean, to some degree, it doesn't matter whether they're real or not. And you will continue to meet, hear me to use that language because it's the language that I'm most familiar with. Right. So it's a part of my internal dialogue. The place where I'm questioning is the literalness of them as separate beings. And so that's, that's kind of where my questioning is at this point in time. And, and you're right. It might be something that I, you know, six months from now, year, whatever, go, well, that was a needed, I needed that reset. Perfectly willing to accept that as, as an outcome. And, but I, I actually even pointed out in my blog, and, and, and it's not very long, but it's like, I don't know if that this is a fallow time because fallow implies that it could be planted, but is being left alone, where I actually feel more like I'm not a field at all, if that makes sense. So, I don't know. Yeah, I, it's one of those things that I've, I've been very reluctant to talk about because so much of what I do with this podcast and with the people I know with my friends. And there's a lot of, you know, more of the hard polytheist people, not only that I love like brothers and sisters, like both of you that, that within my greater community, and I don't want to harm them even with my questioning. So I've been very kind of low key about it, but I finally realized that after like 10, 11 months of this, I should at least, say a little something about it. So 
I want to apologize. I did not mean to put you on the spot. It's just been something that since I read your post has been on my mind. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's been, and it, it's been, I've been debating when and how I should bring it up and it just seemed like a good opening there. So. Okay. As long as you didn't feel like you needed out the door. Well, I mean, I did, I did put it out on a public post, so it wasn't like hidden. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, it's that's just fair. not many, not very many people see or follow my WordPress because there's not much there to follow. So. I kind of, I had, a, I had a couple of, of emotional reactions when you started down this particular road. And it always came back to, I'm still going to love you. You're still going to be my brother. The experiences that we've had with gods and spirits and all the rest are still valid and real. Mm-hmm. It's just that your perspective on things might change. And that might be uncomfortable for me, but it's not my fucking journey. We could both still share a really profound ritual that is centered around gods. It's just that walking into that space, you might feel they're more literal and I might feel like they're more cultural entities, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And we can both share a very profound ritual with very profound outcomes, Mm -hmm. just entering that space from different mindsets. Nope, absolutely. And... You know, speaking speaking to harm within polytheist spaces where atheists are concerned, my main issue has to do with anti-theists particularly. Yeah. And people who Understandable. seek entry into religious organizations either to destroy them or with the attitude that, well, you know, people who don't see things my way, and in this case it's a non-theist position, are just being duped or fools. And I, I find that's inc- you know, that's where my issue with a lot of atheists and anti-theists particularly lies. It's not atheism as such because um, it doesn't hurt me whether you believe in a million gods or one or none. What ultimately the harm comes from is what are you doing? How are you acting? And so I, yeah, yeah, I think exactly. that you you make a huge effort wherever you go to be hospitable, whether you're guest or your host. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'm not just saying this because you're a dear friend. I've had non-theistic people approach me and ask me, you know, questions and debated with me and stuff like that. And the only time where I cut things off is when it gets to a point where, okay, you're getting to the point of insulting me and insulting some really deeply held spiritual beliefs that I have. And it's yeah. one thing it's one thing to call people on their bullshit. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you've never had that issue. <laughs> but it's a whole other thing to to rail somebody because oh you know especially if it's like ad hominem attacks this is why i, I don't dick with most debate bros or atheist circles in general because right, right. i don't i don't have that capacity um my my ability to to be polite disappears after you've insulted me for the third or fourth time so i don't feel that from you i don't feel I feel kind of sad because I was worried that maybe you were going to go entirely away from the community mm-hmm. and then, and then maybe you'd drop the podcast. That was what my, when oh, I really, gotcha. when, yeah. when I, when I dug down in my feelings, I'm like, Oh fuck, is this him leaving? Um, that's what I was more like when I actually dug down into my feelings, it's, Oh, th- is this chapter in our life over? Are we done? Like, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to see much of you anymore. It had less and less to do with what, how your, how your beliefs were shifting and more like, Oh, Am I losing a friend? 
I, I will be completely honest with you. It had crossed my mind. Like, do I belong in this space anymore? And I, I really want to thank Emily for responding when I, when I made that post that, that non-theistic pagans or atheist pagans are really valuable in that space and provide something that, you know, keeps it from being, it's a, a, a closed bubble which can be really valuable. And so it's like, okay, I, I can still contribute. And and like I said, I like seeing things. My worldview is always somewhat mystical to a degree. So I can completely and totally still use language that I don't think is offensive and it fits me and it fits the, the community that I'm addressing. It's just that Probably the reality is that sometimes during some of these conversations, you it, it might be me asking additional questions that I didn't use. Maybe that's what it mm-hmm. looks like. I don't honestly know yet. To be uh, be honest with you, it's just something that I'm I'm working through as a process. Like I have, you know, we've all been very public about the various parts of our spirituality, like you said, in the process that we work through, and that's that's kind of where I'm at. Right now, this is a new process. I'm going to work my way through it, and it's not intended to affect anybody or their beliefs. This is solely what's going on with me, and I just kind of want to talk about it a little. I mean, it would be pretty fucking hypocritical of me to have issue with non-theists and all that in pagan and animist spaces, considering this Wolf pelt that means so very much to me was made by Lupa, who's a non-theistic animist. Like it would be incredibly fucking dickish of me to be like, you right, have zero place here. Well, and like I, I say, you know, non-theistic animist because I think that's currently a very good phrase. I have no problem with thinking there can be incredibly large spirits that do interact with this. Mm-hmm. Where I'm falling into the line of questioning is along like. Are you really a god? Are you just something big? Like, I can be, I can work with a river. I can, the river can kick my ass. The river can kill me. The river can help me. I can build a paddle wheel and build an entire life around the edge of the river. Does that mean I actually need to worship the river as a god? Mm, Probably not. But I can still have a profound, I can have a relationship with it and a respect for it and all this other stuff. But is it, I mean, it's deity air quotes there. That's kind of where I'm, I'm processing. I think I, I think I kind of understand that because I, I, it's, and it's, it's honestly a little frustrating sometimes how often your path and my path kind of parallel each other. <laughs> You've said that before. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and it has been pointed out by other members of groups of ours in the past too, of how similar our paths seem to be when anyway, um, that doesn't matter. Uh, the last two years, maybe year and a half, two years. And I, recently I actually came to Sarenth and was like, Hey, we need to do say their work because I need to get back into some semblance of a practice. Something's missing. Mm-hmm. But over that time, and this actually kind of ties into one of the questions that we received um, on our discord as a way to kind of segue into that portion of the episode, but also tie in everything that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I butted up against the idea of 
the term God or goddesses or deities and those kind of things. And the massive stigma and the weight that comes behind that name and that term. And that is one of the things that I realized I was having difficulty with. And I, I kind of let that aspects like the cultural or the societal understanding of what a God goddess or deity is. I let that go and started to get to know these big spirits as their own personas. And yes, my, my idea of Freya and my relationship with her is very different from what somebody else may have. And, but there are similarities to it. I still struggle with considering her a goddess. And I know that might upset you, Sarenth, and I may, that might upset some of our listeners, but that is my own issues surrounding the with the dogma surrounding the terms of God, goddess, and deity. So I do refer to them. I've just let go of the dogma and the stigma that is there and have been working to define those terms for myself so that I have a better understanding of what that is and what that may mean. Um, If it ends up coming to be that, to me, they're just really, really big spirits, not quite like universal big, but so big because entire cultures for thousands of years worshipped these particular entities that built them up into what they are through their mythologies, through the workings that they did with their people, through their Saithkonas or their witch doctors or shamans or whatever um, that got them to that point. Because sure, they could have started off as a simple river spirit. And then the people came and settled nearby and started working with them and enlivening them with magic or or breath, or spirit, or whatever you want to call it. And eventually, you know, it it grew into this being that became somebody known as Oshun, you know, and then she became a a big goddess to this people because she took care of them. You know, that's kind of where I'm at trying to understand who these beings are to me, and where I feel comfortable defining them under the overarching ruling umbrella of that word because that word has been frustrating me for a while so that's why i just refer to them by their names now i'm like yeah, yeah that's cool Drea. we're good yeah i totally get that because like you know uh i have no problem like believing jaguar is real this very big entity or spirit it's just that particular word does. It kind of gets caught up with a lot of baggage. And, you know, like even standing even right next to me, I still have altars up. I still uh, am making offerings, but it's like, so my altar to Veles, do I look at that as a, a, a deity or is it also in part or completely my attempt to reconnect reconnect with culture that I don't have access to anymore, those of my ancestors. So I think all those things are valid. It's just, you know, so yeah, yeah. The term God has a lot of baggage in the English language. There is, and you know, so much of that has to do with, uh, you know, with Christianity, to be frank. 
And I mean, we like to dump a lot on Christianity, but they're not the only ones that were like, my God is the best God and you got to worship them kind of thing. No, but for several generations, I mean, several generations here in the United States, that's all anybody's going to be exposed to, at least in in my the last several thousand years of reality yeah they you know, have dominated true for everybody, the history but, books <laughs> they have right dominated and so the some of that books. some of that some of that baggage becomes inclusive to that or or, or part of that word so mm-hmm. you're gonna say something sarah sorry oh that's cool um <clears throat> i think i think for me what what differentiates a god from a big spirit is just cosmological influence like i keep i come back to that because the straight jacketed idea of God that most people grow up with in this country doesn't really speak to how I understand what a God is. And when you folks talk about spirits and the way that you use the term spirit, the way that you folks talk about your relationships with spirit, whether we're talking the grandfather fire, whether we're talking, you know, uh, Veles or Othin, you know, <clears throat> I don't think that the word God has as much import as our modern society puts on it from a historical perspective, in part because we know that certain places like Sweden worshipped Freyr as the head of their gods, um, and that other places worshipped uh, Othin or Thor, so it wasn't like there was a bog standard relating to these beings anyway, because there isn't. And so I I feel very similar about it. Uh, Terry uh, Gunnell, I think it was, wrote a wonderful PDF called uh, Pantheon, What Pantheon?, where he questioned the use of the term at all with regard to different cultures and beliefs, especially because you've got so much cultural mixing going on. You've got so many different people. You know, the Germans worshipped ISIS at one point. The, uh, the, 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 the length and breadth of human history has been much more exchange and much more free-floating than a static, singular idea of this is what gods are, bar none, unchanging, unyielding. And I think Emily makes a really good point here that some people are scared to look into paganism in general because their own baggage with the word God. And I think like like ancestor worship and veneration and also just working with spirits and talking with spirits provides a different window into this. And if I had to drop the term God for the rest of my life, my practice wouldn't fucking change at all. But it, it provides a hell of a lot of baggage that people need to get around. So if the way that you relate to Freya is as a big spirit, okay. If the way that you relate to Veles as a concept, okay. Um, I, I think that the weight that we put on the big G term as opposed to relationships is actually a, an active problem that paganism pagan communities in general are looking to get around simply because it's provides such a bulwark of abuse on the other, on the one hand and on the other, there's such a stymieing of expression that it's almost, I wouldn't say that gods are, are you as a useless term, but you are having to define around the term so fucking much that it gets in the way of any kind of conversation. 
I mean, That's why I, I kind of opted to drop the terms completely and instead mm-hmm. just use the, the being themselves. I, I think it's important, whether we're talking from a mythological point of view or whether we're talking from a relational point of view, to know who these gods are related to and what their place in their respective mythological cycles and cultures were. But I think after a point, it's like my relationship is in the here and now. And this is the sticky point I've always had with folks who are like thumping the lore. I don't live then. I live now. And I think the gods are able to change and able to adapt to different circumstances because they fucking will have over time. They've shown that historically, archaeologically. So I don't think that uh, having a different perspective on them from what other people do is in any way threatening to their being. And I don't think that, uh, I don't know, like sometimes when we have these conversations, it really forces me to like, what's, what's at the root? What do I actually care about? So like, I really appreciate you showing the example forward, Jim, because you make me think about things. And likewise, you, Caitlin, um, because when you told me that I had to sit back with it for a minute and go, well, why am I having an emotional reaction? And most of my emotional reactions aren't about the gods. And it's not even about you. It's about the fear that I might lose you as a friend or because yep. my, my perspective is strident and I admit to it. I worry that because I have such a defined and strong perspective that it would put you off or it would hurt our friendship. Yeah, I totally get that. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. one of the really reasons I hadn't brought it up before now, even though I've had some of these thoughts rattling around. And obviously, as I already admitted to, a lot of how I have defined myself over the years is my interaction with my friends and my community. So I've it really like one of the scariest things ever is to just to, to you know post up that post or talk about this because it's like are they, is everyone going to turn their backs on me because I don't know the line, you know? And so definite concern and worry, but, you know, I, I think that probably the greater point is that this is an example of how, as you said, our spiritualities are always changing and we're always approaching stuff and we're approaching it and re-examining it and coming to different conclusions. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be set in stone. Um, I, I think the uh, the the phrase that our Jewish friends might use is uh, to be Jewish is to ask questions. <laughs> it's just something I've heard before, and I kind of feel like it applies here to our to our pagan lives as well. And the other one is it gives us an opportunity to be an example of we have now scary as it might be, we've kind of burst the bubble a little bit. So it's like now if we both know. We have slightly different approaches, yet we can still maintain friendships, maintain, you know, interactions and all this other stuff. It's kind of a blueprint for other people. It, it's, it means that, you know, you can, you can figure out a way to have a spiritual life with people that don't, a rich interactive life with, with people that don't necessarily see things exactly like you do. And then. It's actually one of the more important and vital ways to not only learn about yourself, but learn about 
your trade or your path or your beliefs or whatever is to have somebody with a similar but slightly askew perspective on whatever it is that you are doing at that time, you know? So if you're so stuck in your lane with a bunch of people who are also in that lane, you'll never see how wide the highway really is or where all the exits are and where it could lead you. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. And I think one of the thing that one of the things that really makes this work is how open and understanding we are of each other. You know, we know that you didn't just pull this out of a hat one day and decided I'm going to do this and I'm going to throw it to the world and everybody be damned. <laughs> no, I'm sure you agonized over whether or not you should bring this to people's attention for months because mm-hmm. I know who you are as a person. Um, and I, I'm honestly a little afraid to address the first prompt that we got because of my own personal views of the mythologies, all of them, you know? Um, and that is to say that to me, they are just stories. The beings in them could be real. I don't know. I haven't met them in person. I haven't met them flesh and blood. I believe in them. They've helped me a lot. But when I study the myths or if I read these heroic tales about how a big burly red bearded guy went out in a boat and fought a giant snake and his foot went through the boat. Yeah, that's amazing. That's awesome. But I I read things like, and it was actually, um, I think I was on a Three Pagans on Tap episode with you and Malik Sarenth back around Halloween. And we were talking about how like the veil was really thin and like it's spooky season because we've got all this fog and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think I said something along the lines of like, maybe, maybe the reason why people think the veil is thinning around this time of year is because of the fog or it's in relation to the fog because everything has like an air of mystery, an air of not understanding what's really going on or what's out there. And, you know, it's spooky, you know, woo kind of stuff. And I, I look at, because I've always had, at least I try and strive to have like kind of a delicate balance between paganism and science. I believe in both. And I believe that you can believe in both. But I look at things like the Rainbow Bridge and I look at where those people lived and still live to this day and think about what they experienced up there. The Rainbow Bridge could have been the the Auroras. You know? If you don't mind me hopping in, a couple of things. First off, the 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 notion of a spiritual veil is a Victorian thing. That is a Victorian invention. Uh, we cannot see any idea like this in pre-Christian, pre-Victorian times. Unfortunately, the Victorians made up a lot of shit, a lot of fairy lore, a lot of a lot of, um, and we're still dealing with the after effects of that because their their views made it into popular anthropology and popular writings of the time and we're still having to untangle those incredibly stupid threads um i mean the victorians also ate mummies for 
Yeah, like Emily said, <laughs> or immortality or whatever. I don't remember, but yeah, they're oh. dumb, dumb people. But I, I just want to finish this thought before yeah, I go for it. Go for it. it. The way I view the mythologies, and I'm not saying that they're wrong or that they shouldn't be studied or read or anything, is I look at them through the lens of the people who wrote them. And to me, it was a way for them to understand the phenomena that was going on around them and help them to understand where they lived, their interactions with other people, the land they lived on, you know, and that kind of thing. I'm not saying that they are invalid or not true. I just look at them from a more critical and curious eye, I guess. And I try to understand what inspired them to write that story you know delving Mm -hmm. into the land of storytelling myself I can see how the world around me influences what I'm writing and so that's kind of the way I look at these sorts of things and I understand that some of these stories have deep impacts on people and I understand how some people may take my opinion on it but that's that's how I can feel comfortable reading the tales and sagas of the gods around the world, whether it's the Bhava Gita or however you say it, I'm totally butchered that I'm so sorry. Or, you know, the Christian Bible or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I look at them as ways that people turned crazy shit into amazing stories so that they could understand what was going on. Mythic literalism is a fucking poison. 100%. Um, I don't interpret the story of Oath and Hanging on the World Tree mythically literally. Have I performed a ritual in which I have hung from a tree? Yes, but it was by my foot for a couple hours at a time while I was doing a fast. I would die if I tried to literally follow Odin in that fashion. And I think that we run a similar risk when we try interpreting, uh, instead of a physical death, we risk an intellectual and spiritual death if we try to understand our gods mythically, literally, in part because many of these gods aren't on the ground with us all the time. We have to ask for their attention or we have to do things that whether it's sit down in ritual and pay attention to them or ask them to come to us. Uh, the, the point of myth is to say truth is to, to communicate truth, not literal truth. You know, um, besides the fact that the, the Nordic myths are shattered and in pieces and are dating from different points in history. And you have to understand that context on top of, on top of, on top of, I don't think our ancestors understood these as mythically, literally. You might have instances where, you know, that is a a tree blessed by Thor because it was blasted by thunder and the stuff that you take off the tree is supposed to be protective against lightning. It's supposed to be protective in general. But that doesn't mean like they had this view that Thor was just walking around smiting trees for the shits and giggles. (laughs) Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think the statement is true that myths are designed to express truths. I think one of the things that we have to realize, though, is just like your truth and my truth are different. My truth that I get from the myth and the truth of the guy that wrote it 800 years ago is different. I would fucking hope so. 
Because the guy 800 years ago might have been just okay with human sacrifice. I'm not. (laughs) So, yeah. I mean, also, like, you have to reinterpret the myths for modern times. Does this make any fucking sense in a modern context? If not, don't fucking worry about it. We spent so much of the the time uh, talking in different uh, guests who've appeared on the show, talking about, oh, well, what does it mean for... Tear to stick his hand in the wolf's mouth, or what does it mean that Gulveg was speared and then burned three times and resurrected each time? What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, if, if if we were mythically literally interpreting these things, there would be no reason for us to ask that question. None. Yep. And that is intellectual death if I've ever heard it. That is also spiritual death because that interpretation leaves you open to so many possibilities that leaves you open to so much richness just from, just from interpreting myth, let let alone doing any spirit work, put all that crap aside. If you just look at the myths and think about them, if you only interpret them a single way, you've kind of missed the point, I think. Yeah. I'd agree. I just realized another thing to consider when all these things were written down is the availability of materials and the method in which they were able to write things down. I mean, some, some, some things were written on the insides of caves with, you know, organic paint that they made from berries and flowers and shit. So some of the the myths that people used to tell back in the day, stories they used to tell back in the day, we don't have access to because we don't know what those fucking pictures mean. You know, and some of the very short truncated versions of myths that we get through the the poetic eddas are complicated anyway because of who wrote them and also because myths are oftentimes regional like i highly doubt a tribe that was in the very center of the fucking continent would tell a story about thor battling jormungandr in a boat on in a fjord there's a very excellent example of this with Saxo Grammaticus versus the account from Snorri Sturluson of why Balder died. So in one variation of the myth, it's because him and another being were fighting over Nana, who eventually becomes uh, Balder's wife. Um, and Hod, I don't remember what his name is in Saxo Grammaticus, but Hod and, and Balder fight and Balder is killed during this fight. This is not recounted at all in Snorri Sturluson's work. This is, you know, uh, Hother was blind and Loki put a mistletoe dart in his hand and said, hey, hit that motherfucker. And Balder died because of that. And they killed Hother for it because uh, Hother was the one that shot the missile. Um, completely different interpretations of the exact same gods. Um, Saxo Grammaticus, uh, humor, it humorizes Balder as a, a deified man, but you know, put aside his Christian baggage. They're basically telling the same story with very different plot points, but it's very clearly the same gods in different culture contexts, because uh, I believe he was talking with the Anglo-Saxons at this point where Snorri Sturluson was Icelandic. So 
even over a span of time, the very clear differentiation between these two. And which one you believe is entirely up to you. And you can believe neither one and still validly worship Balder. So, you know, if, if I, I think the myths become a problem when they, they become a straight jacket and the only way to understand gods. Right. Right. Yeah. If they become too dogmatic. I mean, let's be honest that, that, that example that you just gave, you know, these are oral traditions, right? Yes. It's never going to be consistent by time it gets to the, we've all played as kids. I think the telephone game, you know, by time, by time it got three villages over, all of a sudden one person was blind and it was mistletoe. And I don't know. And then by time we got two more villages over, it changed again. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And suddenly you're missing two complete characters that were in it from the beginning. And I mean, if you really want to know how myths traveled, by uh, word of mouth, just look up narrative telephone from Critical Role. That shit's hysterical. <laughs> I think, too, there is a danger in reverse, though, of looking at the ancestors as a dumb height, as uh, they, they, they didn't know what the fuck they were on about. I think that, that there's, and I don't usually posit this because a lot of times, you know, it, it, the truth is not in the middle. Um, I think that in this particular case, there is some truth in the middle here, though, because not only on the one hand are, are different cultures coming out of different contexts and relating to the gods in different ways, but also they are developing different relationships with them themselves, and mm-hmm. their stories necessarily change to reflect those relationships. Because Balder was seen as basically a god of peace. He was unfucking touchable in the Icelandic situation. He was not in the Anglo-Saxon, but he was still seen as a very beautiful being. Mm-hmm. And so what is that what is that culture saying through that myth of a very beautiful being falling to something? On the one hand, mistletoe wasn't put to the oath of all plants so that it wouldn't harm because Frigg thought that mistletoe was too young to take the oath. On the other hand, with Saxon Grammaticus, what does it say that this big, beautiful man would fight and, and die for Nana, this woman that he wanted to, to wed? And what is it, what are these cultures saying to you through the myths? But also, what are you taking from it in the modern day? Right, right. Because I think that's no, actually I, the most I, important thing. So my my analogy spinning brain as you're talking about that, what I think about is like, my grandfather, who worked as a maintenance mechanic in a huge factory, right? So truisms that he might have about a workplace might not work on a job where it's more IT-based. However, there might be truths that can be extrapolated and still used. However, if I wanted to know about machine maintenance, I'm not going to try extrapolating that out. I'm going to go back and say, hey, what did the source say? Maybe I should do it that way. So there, there are, in a way, two truths within that same story, one that can be extrapolated for my circumstance and one that is still a truth that I can look back on and, and maybe follow. Right. And I, I do want to point out the fact that it is okay to lean into someone else's interpretation for a time. Until you understand yep. what it means to interpret a myth. And I think what we're all saying, if I may, is that the myths are subjective, really. 
to whoever is reading it and whoever is trying to understand what it means. Um, they're there to tell a truth and it's not necessarily how to, you know, fish a giant serpent out of the fucking ocean. Um, but it I, might I mean, be about strength. It might be about valor. It might be about pursuing a goal relentlessly to the point of destroying the vessel in which you are within that is keeping you afloat within this life, you know? It's worth pointing out that the poor giant that he's he, he may come with him for this trip is so freaked out that he cuts the fishing line on him. <laughs> yeah, and that's a friend going, hey, you are drinking way too much. Put the mug down. We need to go home, you psycho. Right. Come on. <laughs> Stop chasing the, the stupid big snake. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, answering the question that we got specifically from the Discord, you know, the to way, the way I'm seeing it and the way I'm hearing our conversation is if we look at mythology, is it esoteric or exoteric? The answer is yes. It's mm-hmm. it's both. A little column A, a little column B. Hey, stupid question really quick. Where is that particular question? Because I'm having a hard time <laughs> seeing it. Uh, Discord questions channel. I got it. I got it. I don't think you got uh, five eighteen. Yep, I'd love to suggest a deep dive on mythology analysis, writing myth, uh, exoteric versus esoteric understandings, etc. Oh, it didn't get pinned. That's why I was having a hard time finding it. Got it. Got it. Okay, thank you. As for writing myth, I haven't written any myths. Actually, no, that's a lie. I I wrote one thing for somebody because it was, it blindsided me. And I was like, hey, you need this. Here's the thing. Do with it what you will. Okay, goodbye. Um, for me, if I were to write myth or try to, mm, I don't know, rewrite myth to maybe fit a more modern world that we live in try to take those characters and bring them forward no matter where they may come from um for me that would take some doing i would have to get to know the being in general um i would have to know where they came from the stories in which they appeared and kind of understand them as characters and in that in that frame of mind, just because of how my creativity works when it comes to writing stories as I'm finding is I would have to sort of try to fit them into an archetype. You know, you have the archetypal characters within the frame of a story and, you know, you've got your, your hero, your villain, your sage, your wise one, your goofball, whatever, Um, And I would have to figure out where they fit with, you know, like sprinkles of other things. And then I would set them in this world and be like, do something. Go imagine something, you know, help me out here kind of thing. And it's actually I've I've been poked and prodded to write some things for some gods, but we'll we'll see how that goes and where that takes me. But that's that's a project for a later date. Yeah, I would actually like to see some new myths written, to be honest with you. When you're talking about the Caitlin, one of the first things I think of, and sorry about involving your old man again, Sarenth, but the uh, I'd love to see some myths 
that actually do kind of address current times. Like I, I'd love to see someone try to tackle a myth where through metaphor or symbols or whatever, I'd love to see that struggle in Odin of how do I maintain, how, how do I be this trickster? How do I be this truth teller? How do I be this scoundrel? And yet at the same time, be a good leader and serve my community. Like, I'd love to see myths that work on that because I think that's a beautiful way of trying to help us as, as humans figure it out ourselves. So to a certain degree, that is what I do with my topics or prayers, poems, or songs when people commission me to write them. I might reference mythology, um, but I also take in modern understanding and influence as I write these poems. I'm not writing it in Old Norse. I'm not that fluid. Um, and I can only understand my gods through my modern worldview. So uh, this is also a plug for my Patreon. So if you want to submit any topic request or a prayer, please hit me up on my Patreon. But seriously, though, if, if people want me to take writing in that in that way, I'm happy to, because I think that that's important. It's something I've been noodling on for literally years about how to do it. Um, it's something that I'm doing with the, uh, the Great Lakes, for instance, I am writing a praise poem for all of the Great Lakes as I visit them. And I have more than a few to visit still, but, uh, that is an ongoing project for me. And it is a form of modern myth making. And it's also a form of sacred storytelling together in the same package. So I think that so something that came up in, in the, I'm going to respond to this now, since I'm already on the thread, do y'all view novels such as American gods as a form of modern myth? Yes or no. I, yeah, I I'm kind of in Caitlin's boat, but I think it kind of depends on context. I think there's a, a difference between telling a good story that really reaches people deep in their guts. Like Terry Pratchett's excellent example of this where a lot of the stuff that he has to say about society, about magic, about gods even is really profound and deep, but he did it. I think that the, why you're doing a thing also matters. And why, why are you seeking to make new myths? Is it to be entertaining, which is a valid reason. Just be very clear on your intention. Um, But if, if what you're trying to do is, portray a modern facet of a God or portray a modern facet of a spirit or an ancestor. I think that the mindset matters. Okay. So uh, let me question back then. Could we argue that it is mythology, not because it was intended to be such, not necessarily even because the gods did or did not speak through uh, uh, Neil Gaiman, could we argue that it is mythology because so many of our guests and even ourselves have referenced that it changed the way modern paganism thinks about the gods? Well, I mentioned earlier that my definition of myth is that it's a truth-telling thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is entirely possible for a fictional book to have deep, powerful truths. If Terry Pratchett, arguably, alongside Neil Gaiman, could be looked at as modern myth-makers, I would 
I would agree with that. I don't think they intended to be. Or well, actually, scratch that. Neil Gaiman's really leaned into it these last couple of years because he wrote that whole book on Norse mythology and everything else. I, well, I, I so actually, the the reason why he wrote the the Norse rewrote the Norse myths was because it was something. It was what got him into writing in the first place. So his friend had these books on the Norse uh, mythologies, and when he was younger, he would go over to his friend's house just to read these stories. He didn't even care about hanging out with his friend. It's just his friend had this really interesting book that he really wanted to read. And so in an interview that I heard from him, him rewriting those myths in his own verbiage. And he's very vocal about like, you know, I took some liberties with these stories. I filled in some areas that were blank because it didn't make sense or it needed this to make sense or whatever. Um, he is very verbal about the fact that I'm not rewriting myths as I think they should be as fact kind of thing. You know, I'm doing this as a creative license because I enjoy doing these kinds of things. And I think a lot of the work he's been doing recently and no offense to him is because it makes money. And it's kind of in his bellowick, you know, he knows those myths really well. He knows those characters really well. Mm-hmm. And uh, congratulations dude like you every writer's dream right there right um so but i I, what i said in chat to emily's question do y'all view novels such as american gods as a form of modern myth i said yes and no i think the gods had a hand in the creation of that book based off of how neil gaiman got the inspiration for it but he has been very formal in saying that you know he's not a religious person the way but i do and i kind of agree with you jim that it could be considered a form of modern myth because of how much it has changed the way pagans view the gods that are currently in america and whether or not the author is religious or on that path or had written it intentionally to be this thing doesn't mean that it is not that thing. Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of with that. I don't think, I don't think they had to write it with that intent and I, I'm not sure they need to be a believer, a practitioner to actually have created mythology that affects going forward. That's a good question, though. I'm going to have to think about that a little bit. I mean, because, you know, the Neil, Neil's concept of the gods definitely did. I know, I know that there were some Christians that were profoundly affected by the thought that of a wandering, lonely Jesus over in, in Pakistan, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so I think. Boy, it just seems like that affected the mythology. If if we accept the mythology is even, uh, you know, is the interaction between the story and the spirits and ourselves, then, then I don't know that someone needs to be a believer or practitioner to shape that in us. If we accept that the gods can inspire people, that they can reach out and touch people, 
and that we don't have a say in any of that, that they are their own beings. If we accept that as a premise, how I feel about how a myth comes around does not fucking matter. If I understand that the gods are their own beings, they can inspire whoever the fuck they want, and they can be the most virulent anti-theist, but if the story they're telling has the ring of truth in it, I don't have to appreciate the author's view, but I should at least listen to what they're writing or what they're saying. Well, I mean, honestly, Sarah, I, like I think you've talked about on the show before how some of how you think about certain things was inspired by passages from Dune. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, That's obviously not that. a pagan text. Oh, no, not at all. And so, I think, I mean, yeah, inspiration is inspiration, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm not trying to be like uh, lazy with my my philosophy or my spirituality here, but I think after after a certain point, the hand ringing doesn't do us any fucking good because if you're unwilling to listen to truth when you hear it, you're you're cutting your own journey short. So I think that the author doesn't need to be a believer, but I think that we should give more weight to people that are in our own communities first and not shit on people who have experiences that are contrary to the the lore, big fucking air quotes, purely because they fight with the lore, because we have examples of heathens in their own period of time having disagreements over this shit. And we can look at the archaeological record and see that there was a differentiation of belief. The infighting that we're seeing within polytheist and animist spaces, especially polytheist ones, I don't see this in animist spaces as much, I think comes out of feelings of inadequacy and fear that we're not going to be taken seriously. And I think we really fucking well. That's another part of Christian baggage in general that we need to drop because it is getting in the way of us having authentic relationships with our gods and each other. Yeah, I could see that totally. And honestly, we're all, you know, I kind of hate to say it like this, but we're all grown ass adults. You can decide what jives with you and what doesn't. So if somebody's mythology rubs you the wrong way, then, I mean, remember the golden rule. If you have nothing nice to say, don't fucking say anything at all. Just put the blog aside and move on to something else that does jive with you, you know? And if you never know whether or not your story or your new myth of this, these beings, whatever, will have an effect on somebody. I mean, even if it just affects one person and changes their life for better, that's, I mean, that's one person that you saved. And that's amazing. And if that one person is yourself, then that's even more amazing because that's <laughs> probably the hardest person to save. So, you know, write it down, it, whether in a, a journal or online or whatever, just write it down, get it out and keep moving. Because somebody's going to see it and somebody's going to go, hey, I, I dig this. This is this fits. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We want to want to tackle the second question, yeah. maybe then. All right. So the second question we had for this show was: 
How do you avoid creating a cult of personality as a pagan polytheist or witchcraft leader? And do you have any experiences with supporting people leaving a high control witchcraft polytheistic or pagan group and how to spot the warning signs thereof? Oh, <clears throat> yeah, we, we, hmm. <sighs> So, so here's the thing. Um, I'm going to start with the first part of that question because yes. how do you avoid creating a, a cult of personality? To some degree, you cannot because it takes charismatic people to form groups. It basically takes an extrovert who is very likable and very. I don't know, uh, the word escapes me. I'm sorry, Jim. Go ahead. But yeah, the so to a degree, you can't avoid the charismatic aspects. But where it gets dangerous, and where I think the nature of this question is, is where does it fall into a cult of personality? And that's where you have to look at how people, other people in the group, are living their practice. Now, that does not mean to me and to my mind examining whether they believe in what they're saying or doing. It's really looking at the hard brass tacks of what's actually going on. So if if you're in part of a group and the person in charge is always demanding a certain level of obedience or demanding that you follow a certain course or demanding money or demanding things like that. That's the brass tacks of what they're really doing. So don't look past that to be uh, uh, beguiled by their, by their personality. Look at the brass tacks of what's going on in that group. And is it really fair and equitable and good for the members involved in that group. And if you find yourself in a group where it's not, get the heck out of as fast as you can, just cut ties and go, I would say. And that that's really kind of a, a sticky wicket, really, because they're not going to come up to you and say, oh, you got to give this group money in order to level up kind of thing. You know, it'll be more subtle and more elusive than that. You know, well, some gonna, will, but I'm well, that's fair. Uh, very few will, but there are those that have the gift of gab and will be able to lull you into a sense of security and kind of pull you in. And one thing I would advise is to look at the other members of the group and kind of see their varying degrees of success within their practice Um you know, deal with deal with it lightly, of course. Um, try not to be too overt about navigating this. I mean, it's it is really difficult because sometimes you don't know until you're in, and then certain things start popping up. And sometimes you don't know at all until somebody points it out and says, Hey, that's a huge fucking red flag. Because some of these people are that is what they do. They're they're predators, they find people who they can easily manipulate through various degrees of, I don't know how to say this, um, through a control or, or I guess the backhanded comments, like 
oh, you know, you're really pretty, but kind of thing. Not necessarily that, but that's the best I could do because Valley Girl always comes out in those situations. But it's, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to do this because I, I'm not much of a people person. I kind of avoid groups as a whole and I surround myself with, you know, two or three individuals. And I'm like, these are my people get away. <laughs> these are the good ones. No. What do you think, sir? Hmm. Do I have experience with supporting people leaving a high control witchcraft polytheist pagan group? Yes. Can I speak to it? <laughs> right. Not without permission. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I'm struggling. I don't know that I can speak to this adequately with the, with the, the trust that has been entrusted to me. And I'm not just thinking of one particular, I'm thinking of several because this is not my first rodeo regrettably. Well, not regrettably, but unfortunately, um, sorry, I'm crossing my arms because I'm like, I'm trying to deliberate inside my head what I can talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, I think, no, go ahead. I think part of the, the, the problem with this is that speaking up and speaking out for certain cases is really fucking easy. And it's really easy in hindsight. Catching this shit while it's mid-flight is really hard. I've been bamboozled. I have had rose-colored mm-hmm. glasses with people. Because mm-hmm. when you got the rose-colored glasses on, all the red flags just look like flags. Right. Um, I think that certain things you will not understand until it is in the rearview fucking mirror and you've had some, yeah. some distance. You right. know, there, there are times where I have said on this show, look for these red flags. I saw the red flag and I fucked up and didn't see it. And people got hurt. And that's not, it's a, it's a failing, but it's not my responsibility. If that makes sense. You know, because cult leaders, cult of personality folks, people who intentionally cultivate people around them in that predatory fashion do so in very subtle ways that even people who are trained to spot this shit will occasionally miss. It's not, it's not Mm -hmm. a failing of you as a person. It's, it's like making a perception role in D and D right. Or pathfinder. Your, your, your character is not a failure because you fail roles, because if that was the case, I'd never make a fucking character because I suck at rolling. Um, the, The issue is, you're going to sometimes fail those perception rules and you have to just deal with it because it doesn't say anything to your character or to your person that you fucking missed it. Because even, like I said, even people who are trained to, to detect this shit will occasionally fall victim to scams will occasionally fall victim yeah, to yeah. people baffling them with bullshit. Um, how do you, a lot of the stuff that we've talked on the show, there's several, several episodes where we talk about avoiding abusive um elders in the community and things like that and i am somebody who had an abusive elder i've had several over the course of my life so a d like malik says in the chat a deprogramming expert would be a very good guest i fully agree um and so some of this stuff is not something that we can just throw down some some to look at rules because you've got various tools already you've got the abcdef 
and you've got other, uh, I know there's other ones, but I can't think of them right offhand. But there's different rubrics that you can look at to say, oh, this person's developing a cult of personality. This person's a cult leader. I think a lot of it comes down to control. A lot of it comes down to what information they are or are not willing to let into a group, uh, what perspectives they are or are not willing to consider or that they eschew in their group. Um, this one thing to say, hey, this is a problematic author. I really don't recommend you read them because they're a white supremacist and a waste of time. It is another thing to say, don't you ever read this or you're a piece of shit. Or reading this is forbidden. They're only going to lead you down the path of darkness. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like the... What do, what do you think of the first warning signs that people might recognize are like what I, what I tend to think of is like, there's two things that I'm going to, I would be wary of anybody whose complete structure rev- and all their group all revolves around them or one or two individuals. I'd be wary of that. So like if the person that lead the rituals is also the person that handles the finances is also the person that, gives people assignments. And if, if, if it's always the same people, I'd be cautious and, and make sure you're keeping your eyes open. That's not to say that they're bad, but keep your eyes open. Um, now I would, I would also, also okay. Oh, I would also go as far as saying if leadership doesn't change often, or if there isn't like an option to change leadership, like right. there isn't room for you to grow within the group like they say we are the rulers of this group and you will never take our position period like this is our you're a part of our group but you'll never be here i mean like and that was getting to my second point like there might be times when it's a small enough group where that's you know unavoidable right that there's only three people and there's three jobs it'll probably end up falling to the same three people over and over again whatever but my my second point would I've noticed that, uh, and this is outside of of spiritual spaces. This is definitely the business community. This is definitely politics, and that watch how they handle feedback. Because if you give constructive criticism and they lash out at you or try to punish you for it, man, that's a get the hell out of dodge. If they're you know. Not saying that they'll be successful in making the joint changes, but if they say, oh, that's a good point, we should consider it, let's see what we can do about it, they could still fail. But if they're not getting, like, I don't know, the the whole getting angry, having such a control over any sort of criticism or feedback, that's that's a huge flag for me. And I think that's one of the first things that you'll notice, because you might not even notice it about yourself. Like, if you're in a small group, and you see that group leader and another member are constantly butting heads, try to remember it's not about who's right or wrong all the time. It's how the feedback is given and how it's received and then what's done with it. Yeah, it's not about the anger and it's not about, hey, I don't like this information. It's about how shit's shut down or how things blow up. Yeah, yeah, because that's a big one. Because then, it, then it's not even it's not even you. Like, because it's tempting to get in that whole us versus them. Bob's always causing trouble. Every one of these damn rituals, Bob causes trouble. But like, hey, you know, one of those days it might be like, why the hell did they shut Bob down? Why did they just like trample over everything he said? Because he had a valid point. Was just trying to mm-hmm. get. Then it's not a matter of who's right or wrong. It's like, why the fuck did they handle it that way? That's your red flag. 
one thing that I, I think is a pretty big red flag that should instantly throw up warning signs is if they try to be deep friends or family right off the rip. If they try to oh, develop, yeah, yeah, yeah. if they try to develop core relationships right off the bat and you've just <laughs> met them or you're in the process of getting to know them and they are like, yeah. like that is something that I have experienced on several occasions and that I was particularly vulnerable to because I came out of the Catholic tradition and yeah, yeah. That o- openness and, and willingness to just shake your, your person to your right or left hand. <laughs> beware the love bomb. Yes. Beware the love bomb. Holy shit. Oh, this is yeah. a really good one too that uh, Emily posted in chat. Whether you're allowed to participate in other groups or have mentors in other areas outside of the group, that yeah. should have been a huge fucking red flag for me in my yeah. particular circumstance. That should have been a very big red flag. Yeah, that's a great one. Or even not even participate, but have friends outside of that group. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's something that I noticed from some instances in the past as well. Um, There was always sort of like a barrier or a wall that was put up and I don't know. It's as like we were saying, as an outsider, it's easier to see than being in the thick of it. Um, And a lot of, a lot of those situations are definitely hindsight. Hindsight Mm. is 2020. Yeah. Um, Holy shit. Getting out of it, having a support system on the outside, some people who are not affiliated with those groups whatsoever is pivotal to getting out. That way you have, I don't know, somewhere to go, uh, places where you feel safe winding down, um, even other magical practitioners that are adept at uh, doing cord cuttings or protections, you know, things like that to help support you in that time. Um, it, r- there really is no guidebook on how to do this. I mean, there are um, deprogramming counselors and therapists, I'm sure, but I don't know how many of them specialize in, you know, cutting ties with a religious group. Um, maybe more than I believe. I have no idea. But that's some scary stuff. And yeah. I, I hate that yeah, it's it, rampant within the pagan community. When it happened to me, I just, I had to cut ties completely. And I just did it as fast as I possibly could. And it's like, I'm sorry for some of my friends that are within the group, but I had to listen. Yep. Here's my observation and I'm out. <laughs> and if you want to stay in the group, that's fine, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to have to cut contact with you. That's just how it was. And then for me, I don't know if it was a matter of deprogramming is that that could be a valid word for it in, in some circumstances for me, that's that threw me into a period of, of like we use in other circumstances, deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Was this my belief? Was it theirs? This is something I added to my practice that I want to keep. Is this something that no, I'm ready to let go of because that was put on me by the group. I had to, I had to break all that down into its component pieces and then go, okay, here's what I'm taking forward with me. And the rest is like them. It's getting left by the roadside. Here we go. I think uh, there's an aspect of shadow work to it as well. Like you have to separate what is yours and what is theirs and what they forced you to feel, you know, for that amount of time. And 
Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot. And I, I really hate that people have to go through that. So. I think that uh, in addition to having support networks on the outside of, of the group, uh, if you are going to get somebody out, you need to have the resources to do so. You need to have the mental, physical, spiritual resources. You don't have to all have it on yourself. Please don't. That's a lot of weight for anybody. But if you are going to get somebody out of a cult of personality situation, or if you are going to do that, the first thing you need to do is put on your own fucking mask. Because if you've been taken in by these people, you need to take care of yourself first and make sure that you're safe. And if the question is not your safety, but somebody else's, you also need to be sure because some of these cults of personalities can get violent, violent in different ways. You might get doxxed. Your job might be harassed. You might be harassed at your job. You have to be willing and able to really think through the potential consequences of getting somebody out of one of these because you could be deeply affected because some of these people take revenge. So make sure that you are dotting your I's, crossing your T's, and that you've got your shit on lock as much as you can. I'm actually going to go a step further and say not that you shouldn't but don't flat out don't try to save all someone by yourself oh no 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 no. because honestly because really what you're then trying to do is you're just substituting one drug for another whether you mean to or not you're trying to use your personality and your love and your support as a placebo or or as a as a cure for this other thing that they were on you're just switching one personality for another now hopefully you're a less toxic person cult of personality that they're leaving, but that's just, that's not going to be good for the person long-term either. That's why it has to be multiple people. No, but I know that sometimes it's, it's somebody hits a wall or somebody hits a point of, Oh wow, this is too much. I can't do this. And then they exit and then they want to go back for other people. And I get that impulse, but I, I fully agree with you. Like that's a, that's a good impulse, but you shouldn't be doing that on your own. I'll I'll agree. Yeah. Take it one step further. Just don't, don't do it on your own. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like in my case, I, I there was just no way. I, and like, I would have, I would have gone down with the ship. I, I, I couldn't save everybody else and myself. That's why I had to go. I'm leaving. Here's my reasons for leaving. When it comes, and the to, rest is on them. They're, they're. Yeah. When it comes to situations like that, and you have to, you know, abandon ship. The only responsibility you hold as somebody within the group is saying, this is what I know. This is what I've seen. This is what, this is why I'm leaving. That is the only responsibility you hold does not mean that you have to drag people overboard with you trying to get away from the sinking ship. All you have to do is say, this is what's happening. I'm going, the life jackets are over there. Goodbye and jump off of the ship and go. And people will or won't follow you. I, I think that, you know, using this metaphor, um, it is a useful and good thing to to take a life jacket and take a lifeboat and to be willing to row up to shore on your own if you have to. Because especially if you're the first one who's realized some shit's gone crazy, some, some shit's gone sideways, then you might be the only person willing to make that leap. 
and you will sometimes have to make that leap on your own until you can find people that aren't in the group. If you have been isolated by a cult of personality, that is really hard and you're brave for making that first step, but that's only the first step is getting out. The next step is you have to go somewhere. So you need to have a plan of action before you make that jump. And this is true whether you're inside or outside. And again, don't fucking do it on your own um, if you can actually avoid it. There are some, again, there are some cults of personalities that I have been privy to that I have seen where the people are so discouraged from the inside to leave that they don't trust anybody on the outside. That is a really hard situation to be in. And that is a really hard situation to watch, but you're not their fucking savior. You can provide support. You can provide space. You can do a lot of different things that are helpful and useful to that group or that people when they're ready to break ties. To a certain degree, if you try coming in from the outside in a lot of these situations, you're going to be cast into the them role, to their us. If you try to break it from the outside in, you're probably going to be cast in the them role. Understand that going forward. If you leave the group, you are probably going to be cast into a them role. A lot of the relationships that you came to rely on are going to be gone. And so that's why people don't tend to leave these unless that they're at a point of desperation or at their point of self-realization to where I must leave. And that sucks because a lot of these cults of personalities are really good about wrapping you up in their, in their nets and not letting you out. And that, you know, after a certain point, you know, we can give all the advice in the world, but you got to get out how you got to get out. And it's probably going to be messy. It, every time that I have come out of a situation where I've had an abusive elder or, <laughs> yeah. or abusive relationships, it has been intensely messy. And I have lost relationships. I've also gained some. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. You just have to be willing to put up with the bullshit until it gets better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Wow, oh, I really want to. Yeah, that was really good. I really want to know the steel cage match: pancakes, <laughs> waffles, or French toast. I, I I I don't have that level of consistency. <laughs> what, what what am I in the mood for? Right. I, I don't. If I had to choose, it would go French toast, waffles, and then pancakes. But I am far too lazy of a cook to cook either waffles or French toast, so it always ends up being pancakes. I appreciate that we're playing <laughs> fuck Mary Kill with our food. <laughs> hey man, it's warm and gooey. What can I say? <laughs> I mean, you know, like <laughs> yeah, I broke Sarah. What do you having on it, right? Like, obviously, you know, waffles have that extra crispiness, and they got those little mm-hmm. little dimples to collect all the fruit. And, and stuff that you put on it. So that makes them better there. But, you know, something to be said about a nice pancake when you're trying to soak up the alcohol at two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> French toast is just darn, darn delicious. So I don't know. I mean, if you do French toast right, you can have both the the soft, warm gooiness of the pancake and also the outer crispy, crusty of the waffle. I mean, and then yeah. if you put it in a waffle maker, then, well, then you just got the most delicious thing in the whole darn world there. French waffle? 
Uh-huh. But no, I said don't don't right. that term. I don't know what you're playing. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Sorry. I, has there been a cage match where they just kind of all pile up on top of each other and they just lay there? Because <laughs> that sounds delicious. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. You know, so you know, it's hard for me to decide. It all depends on what I'm in the mood for. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, they're they're all kind of similar elements of the same dish so i mean waffle mix really is just pancake mix but in a waffle maker (laughs) right all right uh next question then what do we want to do next (laughs) Uh ah emily you're funny agf podcast was destroyed today when people from multiple european countries crossed the atlantic ocean to kill one of the hosts which one of us hold on right (laughs) (laughs) no no i'm pretty sure it was me i'll I'll take that one it's fine (laughs) initial english breakfast i slap all the meats on the plate and a poached egg yep (laughs) there you go so i think the last question was when it comes to journey work as we know everyone's take and process is different how would you describe or outline in a nutshell your introduction or current process of how you do journey work. Mm. For me, journey work starts with an awareness of the physical body itself. You, um, in a very truncated and very simplistic manner, um, pick up a physical hobby. I know I've said this a thousand times, but having an awareness of your physical self will strengthen your spiritual wanderings to a degree that I cannot explain. I just 100% you need to do it, whether it's daily wiggling your fingers and toes and, you know, doing the worm with your arms to really get the feeling of the movement of your body down. And then I slowly expand out from my body and I try to feel the floor beneath me. And I specifically start with the floor because that's where my butt is or my feet or whatever. And then I slowly kind of expand out to the the room around me and see if I could get up into all the corners and cracks and crevices. And then I go throughout my house. You know, I stay where I'm safe to begin with. You know, my house is warded. I have spiritual things here. I have a relationship with my house, uh, Vitir and my land Vitir and things like that. And then the process gets a little more complicated because at that point you're starting to step outside of your body. And that would be a very simple beginning practice that I would give to somebody who has never done journey work in the first place. Start with the physical body, start with your first physical room that you're in, explore it to your best abilities, and then go throughout your house and explore every room individually per journeying session so you can get the feeling of leaving your body and get the understanding of how to snap back to it. That is my personal way of teaching people how to do journey work. Yeah, I think the question, uh, the how uh, was specifically was, how would you outline what you do now is which I think you just did. And how did you, what did your introduction to the process of journey work look like? Like what, what was it like for you at first? Oh, I, that's really hard for me to remember. 
<laughs> um, one, because I've been, I guess, journeying ever since I was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper and not realizing it. And so my work was figuring out how not to journey, how to stay within my body. Cause I, I suffered from uh, disassociating a lot growing up. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I always start with getting into the physical body because that's what I had to do in order to strengthen my journey work. Because in back then I would journey I would step out of my body and be like, all right, where am I going to show up this time? You know, it was never a guided journey. But ever since I started that physical practice, I was more capable of saying, okay, I am going to see hell or I'm going to see my ancestors or I'm going here or I'm going there. And I would actually show up there. Sometimes, you know, the spirits had different ideas, but, you know, shit happens. I always make it back okay. How about you, Sarah? Any thoughts there? I've got a few. I've got a few. Um, probably surprising no one. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things that I, I really want to like tamp down before I get into it is, what do we mean by journey work? Because to me, journey work is external. It is not internal. Generally, mm-hmm. generally speaking, if I am journeying, I am going out of my body somewhere. And some people use the term astral travel. Uh, I use the term hamfara because that's the most common soul vehicle I'm taking. But what what do you mean by journeying is a really important point. And I wish I'd asked this because some folks will say, well, I, I sat and meditated and did internal work. So that's journey work, right? I'm like, no, not to me. Not at all. Uh, partly because if your internal world is so malleable to what you want it to be and what you want it to do, generally speaking, uh, the journey work that I understand as journey work in the common parlance takes place outside of myself, spiritually somewhere else. And it might just be outside of my body in this world, or I might be going to another realm like Asgard, for instance. The point is to get out of your skin and to go somewhere else. And so I, I think that Storm's point about getting very intimate and very comfy with being in your body to start with is a really important part of that. I first started doing journey work without meaning to. I would get pulled places by different gods and spirits. Um, the Probably the first journey I ever had was actually a guided meditation when I was going for confirmation. And we were among the group that got to watch Jesus be crucified. And then we got to receive the Pentecost with the apostles. That was odd. I had a very, very liberal Catholic upbringing. So yeah, for anybody that's like in a Catholic church, I'm like, yes, in a Catholic church. So they had us go through this guided meditation where we went back in time and, and yeah. So very visceral reaction for me. Uh, with regards to uh, Your Excellency, I'm seeing Atlantis. Too far, too far. <laughs> <laughs> That's metaphor. Get back here. <laughs> um, so I would describe journey as, as spiritual travel or flight outside of your body. 
my introduction again was as a Christian doing guided meditation and has come into what's called hamfara in Old Norse, which is journeying forth in my hammer, my second self. And I need to emphasize, at least for the way the old Nordic way of looking at this, this is fucking dangerous because you're literally taking a soul vehicle and going that away. So journey work has dangers in it. This is also reflected in different shamanic uh, traditions in Tangerism, for instance, in Mongolian shamanism, Buryat shamanism, where spirit flight is fucking dangerous. And generally speaking, shamans are the only ones that do it because they've got the allies in the training. However, I recognize this is not the common thing and that my my perspective is in part informed by my perspective as a heathen and also just the general occult milieu. So I kind of have a, there's the potential for danger with journey work because spiritually you're opening yourself up to a lot of different things, especially if you don't have a clear idea of your perspective of cosmology or where your place in things is that can be uh, potentially dangerous just because if you don't know what you're looking at, you don't know what you're interacting with. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, alongside the getting grounded in your physical body, get grounded in your, in your mythological and intellectual space. Why do you think the thoughts you think? Why do you react the way you react to things? Um, uh, What is your perspective on the soul? These are important things to ask before you take yourself out of your body. Now, (laughs) granted, along with Caitlin, I've also experienced a lot in my life where I just spontaneously flew and there wasn't choice. It was just a thing that happened to me. Um, But if you're going to do this with intentionality, knowing what you're doing, why you're doing it and how you're doing it is really important. If you have the ability to do that. If I could go back and and teach myself from the ground up, if I had a, a teacher that could do that for me, that's where I'd start with. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you, Emily. So she reminded me that I start and end my sessions with Galder for grounding, centering, and shielding. I also do it for cleansing. I have five basic runes that I work with every time I do spirit work, almost every single time. And the only time where I f- might forget is I forget. Um, but generally speaking, I work with uh, Ansys for cleansing, Gable for grounding and centering, Kanos for cleansing and empowering my shields, Nalthys for burning away poisons and uh, for burning away anything that comes to infect or touch me that shouldn't. And then Fehu for bringing me virility, vigor, energy, might, and power, and wisdom, and all the wisdom and the uh, collective understanding of how to use these things wisely and well. And so with these five runes, I'm usually fairly good to go. That's like the boilerplate, how I prep for dream work. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I don't know how to answer that right now, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I've i gone, I think, you know, like like a lot of people, my first experience with journey work was, you know, guided and, and with help. And I did that after learning a lot about grounding and centering and practicing that for a while and then meditating for a while. And then that was, that was the next step. So I think probably my, my story echoes a lot of people in that regard. What I don't know is how I feel about it right now. (laughs) Because, you know, honestly, since I've been processing so much of this stuff internally and how I think about things, I haven't done any journey work. So I don't know what my current perspective is on it. I think like even before that um, 
if you were to ask, is it internal or external? I, my answer probably would have been yes, because because even even then, it's a lot of how we interpret things that obviously are not physical. So, you know, it, a lot of what you see, I'm I'm not going to see something in journey work that is totally foreign to what I've seen or read about or watched in my physical self. I'm not going to experience stuff in journey work that is so far afield, I can't comprehend it. So to me, it seems like it has to be a little bit of both. That makes sense. I'm actually with, I'm with you, Jim, for me, journey work isn't only external. I do internal journey work when I'm dealing with um, big emotions, things mm-hmm. that I don't understand, or if there's a particularly deep shadow work that I'm doing at the time and I need to work it out somehow or try to understand mm-hmm. it better. Sometimes getting a less of a body feel and more of like a, a mental spiritual feel on that particular thing that I'm trying to shape and mold and change or just understand. Um, I will do a journey inside and interact with my own spirit self in that sort of way. Um, And then there's also the idea of the mind palace, you know, mine's less of a palace and more of a library in the middle of a forest for some reason, but I have that too, when I'm trying to recall something, I will journey to my mind library to recall a memory or to bring something back or to experience something again, remember a time when I experienced something truly amazing and I need that emotion right now, you know, I'll do that sort of thing. And I consider that all journeying. I do agree that meditation and contemplation are not journey work. Three totally separate different practices. And if you want to disagree with me, DM me and I'll tell you why you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I've gone on this rant before. It's probably 20 episodes ago by now, but (laughs) not doing it again. Hmm. Yeah, that, that was just my little additional two cents on what you were saying. How important for both of you are things like rhythm, rhythmic music or movement or, or or that sort of thing? Because I know like sometimes uh, just the whole sit and journey thing does not work very well. Even listening to music necessarily doesn't work well. Sometimes it can involve that I, I really need to physical movement like the, the movement I are when I'm drumming or something like that. But how important is the repetitive rhythmic stuff for you guys in your journey work? So I am rapidly starting to accept the fact that I have ADHD tendencies, if not ADHD itself, um, because of reasons. Uh, It depends on the situation and my environment. If I am outside in nature and there's a nice stream nearby, or if I'm out at the lake, I could drop into it no problem without any work up, no build up, no songs, no galdering, no nothing. And I'd just be in it. Or it could be perfectly serenely happy in my quiet little spirit room down at the end of the house and fucking nothing. 
when that room is specifically designed for that bullshit and I can't do it. So I'll put on drums. Sometimes that helps. Sometimes I'll light some incense. You know, it it depends on where, what type of chaos my brain decides to throw at me that day. So yes to all of it. Oh, guys, I feel you. I feel you so <laughs> right. much. Right. Like, I just want to sit down and do this journey work that I've been planning for a month. Can you fucking work with me here? But no, you're it's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you can put on your favorite be- drumming track. You could, you could, there's so many things that you could do. And they're all going to be like, no, today <laughs> is the day that you're supposed to read the next chapter of your book. I don't want to. I had planned it in journey today. We don't care. We don't care. <laughs> However, tomorrow on your way to work while you're driving, you're going to do that journey. <laughs> right? That's happened to me many times. Oh, delivery, that's rough. Where I just appear at the destination. I'm like, what the fuck happened? Uh, okay, everything's all in one piece. All right, we're good. I think. Okay, so for... Just the sake of conversation, I think it might be important how, if at all, do you best distinguish between external or internal work? Well, really quick, I want to, I'm going to, because I'll lose the thread if I don't jump on the last topic. (laughs) Um, Physical interaction for me is pretty important. Um, Emily noted in the chat, cause I forgot to put in my introduction for journey work that I do rock back and forth a lot, but I sometimes I'll play specific music, uh, specific music might be like, I use, uh, laboratorium piesne for g- journeys to Alf- Alfheim. I'll use, uh, paleo wolf. If I'm going to Jotunheim, I will use, sometimes I use paleo wolf to go to Asgard too. It just kind of depends on context. Uh, I might work with word runa or Halun if I'm going to. Uh, Asgarth, or if I'm going to different worlds, I've got a, like I've got multiple playlists in my YouTube after specific realms that I'm journeying to. Like that's sometimes how I'll do is I'll just part of my ritual prep is I'll just scour the internet for music that reminds me of different worlds, and then I'll mm. plug it in and see if it works. Um, that's cool. Yeah, for me it really helps. Uh, something that Emily noted here is it helps if you go into the journey with a particular goal or direction. That's my experience as well, because if I just go journey on the world tree, I'm y'all, I got ADHD. I might just fucking go up and down and up and down and up and down. And maybe I'll just do a foot race <laughs> with Ratatoskr the whole time. <laughs> so uh, if I know that I'm going for a certain thing, that tends to be really helpful. And that can just be <laughs> going to a world and vibing in that world for a while because a God wants me to come and journey there. Um, or I've got a, a spirit there that wants to have a conversation and they only want to have it there. I have had that before. Sometimes the spirits can be really picky. Um, so what was your second, what was the question you just asked? I'm sorry. What's, what's a good way? What's a, uh, uh, what techniques do you use? How do you distinguish between external or internal journey work? How can you tell one from the other? I tend to do a lot more ritual for external work. I tend to do uh, my Galder. I tend to do rocking. I tend to do music, the whole nine yards. I will do a lot more prep, generally speaking, for external work because sometimes you get ride-alongs and you don't want that shit. So doing all the prep work and putting on spiritual armor, so to speak, 
and, you know, dotting your I's, crossing your T's, making sure your brakes work is really important before you leave the garage. But if yeah, I'm yeah. just, if I'm just staying inside and I'm just doing internal work, I will do a lot of similar prep work. So I'll do my cleansing, grounding, centering, and shielding because I want to approach myself in as clean and as, uh, sometimes physically clean because like smells can be distracting. Um, whether it's me or whether it's something else, you know, if I've got, if I've got wood smoke on my clothes, I might change my clothes out because that'll just bring me back to the fire as opposed to internal work. So I don't tend to work with incenses right now because I got so unused to working with incense, uh, because of my previous living situation, uh, living with my folks, they didn't want incense because it smelled the whole house up. Now, you know, whatever we want to do, we can do it. Cause uh, it's my house. That's uh, our house. And uh, so I'm, I may get back into doing that. Cause I used to use incense quite a bit, but generally speaking, when it comes to internal work, it's a gentle or a slow moving drum beat. Uh, it's gentle music. Binaural beats tend to help me get down. The trick here is that I also use binaural beats to sleep. So it's only certain songs I can use for internal work. <laughs> Otherwise I'm just going to fucking crash out and just wake up a couple hours later. Um, it would be one hell of a nap. Though. So it is. Yeah, I've, right. done it, I've done it by accident before I woke up. With, oh, motherfucker. Oh, but so I feel is, great. <laughs> so is that to say a large aspect of whether it's internal work or external work for you depends on your intent and your preparation? Some of it, some of it, yeah. Uh, some of it is is blatantly internal work. Like if I'm going in, uh, if I'm doing, for instance, uh, memory palace stuff, if I'm doing telesterian work, that is a combination of internal, external for me. If I'm doing purely internal work, I'm usually incorporating really deep breathing uh, or shallow breathing over a long period of time to get myself down. If I'm doing external work, that tends to be much more rapid, much more excitable, much more. So the effort is to get my body and mind to kind of let go and go forth as opposed to relax and come inside. So a lot of my preparation tends to be more excitable or at least more oriented around the rocking and the uh, singing sometimes or externally making noise or movements to get my body to a point where it can let go and my spirit can fly out. When I'm doing internal work, it's about coaxing myself inside, getting comfy and relaxing. So I tend to do a lot more lying down for internal work than I do for external. For me, my my approach is similar. Um, I do the the grounding, centering, and shielding, regardless of if it's internal or external. Um, they're both the same for either. I don't have um, a variation on those practices whatsoever because I don't know. I'm I guess practical in that manner. <laughs> um, if I'm doing external work, I might do additional offerings to specific beings if I'm going to them specifically looking for information or advice or to reaffirm a relationship or whatever. Um, if I'm doing internal work, I might do an offering to myself beforehand. Like I will ask myself, what is something you want to do right now in this moment before we do this? Like, do you want a cup of tea, a glass of water, a piece of chocolate, you know, um, 
And I, a lot of it is intention. Um, however, one thing I have noticed that is very blatantly different between internal work and external work is that when I travel outside of my body to the world or to the being that I'm intentionally going to see, the only thing that is in really sharp focus is the being itself. The landscape around them time tends to shift or unfocus or change. Although like it's always like with Alfheim, it's always, you know, lush, beautiful green trees and mountains and rivers and shit like that. But it's never one landscape. It'll shift between a waterfall and a river to a lush, deep green forest to, you know, a beautiful golden uh, meadowscape or whatever. Or when I go to uh, Helheim, I will go to Hellas Hall and even the hall, the things on the walls will shift around and change and move. And because I, I feel like these places for me are more liminal than they are esoteric and out there because I technically should not be able to go there because I'm still a living being, right? My spirit is still tethered to a, a physical being, but if I'm going internal, things are very sharp and very focused and nothing shifts or changes. They are where they are and they are what they are no matter what. And I have control over the landscape and part of my internal work is physically rearranging some of these internal spaces that I go to, to do work. in. sometimes I need to move a pillar over here. Sometimes I need to uproot a tree and set it down over there because it needs more sunlight or whatever. And I think that differentiation in work for me is something that my spirit self kind of translates as Hey, you're inside your own brain versus out there and fuck all wherever, you know, we don't know. It could be nothing. It could be, I have a very imaginative imagination. Um, who knows? But that that's how I differentiate between whether I'm internal or external. When I don't know I'm journeying, I guess. Mm, yeah, I could see that. I kind of, I kind of feel like, uh, there's a, a movement sensation there too. Like, although the, the movement or drumming or stuff could be important, um, where I seem to differentiate from you both is when I'm in external work, I have to feel like I'm pushing myself out of my body. There's a certain sort of kinetic sensation to it. A lot of times when I did more journey work, the most common way for me to begin, no matter where I was going, was in the underworld. And the way I was taught was to find an opening and you go down and you cross a body of water and that sort of thing. That's kind of the stereotypical way of, of looking at it. But for me, I always had to feel like I was stepping back. Like my face was a mask and I had to step back from it, take another step back. And then I used to use my spine like a ladder to go down to the underworld. And that's where I started. God damn, that's metal. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, oh, yeah. it was that it was that sensation that it, it, it made it feel it was 
I had to externalize. I was still aware of my body. I often thought about like whatever I was sending out was almost like a a drone because I, I was aware of here, but I was also aware of there. So it was like my remote control drone. But the, how I started the process, it was always going down to the underworld like that. I'm, I'm sorry, sir. What happened? <laughs> Dude, just the thought of you controlling your spirit like it's a fucking drone is sending me, man. <laughs> like, it's actually far more common than I thought. Uh, um, no, no, that's it's very true. I was surprised when you started telling me about that. Yeah, Nicholas Wood there was the one that first I, I had uh, had the conversation with, and I'm like, you know, is it weird? I don't feel like totally immersed. Like I'm really in that space. I feel kind of like I'm remote controlling part of my spirit as it goes out. And he's like, no, 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 that's really common. Uh, uh, various mm-hmm. various uh, uh, tribal societies, and I'm like, oh. Well, shit, now I don't feel so bad. <laughs> so with a lot of times, because of where I'm sitting or where I'm at, I have to maintain a, a physical awareness of where I'm doing this work. So like when I'm on break at work and I need to do some some journey work, I have to maintain that awareness. It makes total sense to me. It's just the, the notion of you flying yourself around like one of those remote control X-wings. is fucking hilarious to me. <laughs> yeah. You know, like your your description of it actually like, a lot of my journey work comports with that. And even some of my Udasetta, where I'm just sitting in a place and spiritually outside of my body, but still kind of in the area, more or less. Mm-hmm. Not journey work per se, but it's spiritually sitting out. A lot of like what you're talking about with that kind of like, I'm sort of here, but I'm sort of there. I'm kind of like, that makes, sorry, it's exciting because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, you're giving me words and I appreciate it. Well, I hate to say it, we've been we've uh, been over two hours here, so we should probably consider wrapping up. I do Holy want shit. to say real quick, um, yes, do check out Saren's Patreon, and also Around Grandfather Fire has a Patreon too. You also, uh, we have a wonderful and amazing Discord community. If you can't get enough of Saren's, you can also check out Three Pagans on Tap, and I also. Um, I want to throw out there our Patreon. I we have we'll go through the roll call of our supporters again real soon here, but I, I do want to uh, shout out to uh, Finn and Laura Loki who had to leave us for a little while because of financial circumstances, but now they are back as Patreon supporters, and we really appreciate that. Yay! Welcome back! Yay! <laughs> and it it was kind of funny. I, I was thinking one of my little stray thoughts that I, I follow sometimes during the show. I had to look it up. One, one, one. I'm like, oh, that's an angel number. <laughs> what does that oh, mean? No. And so I looked it up and it was like new beginnings. And I'm like, ironic. We had to get 110 fucking episodes first before we got a beginning. <laughs> 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 also, I mean, n- none of us have ever done anything the correct way. So. <laughs> If you folks uh, want to experience, speaking of writing myths and experiencing them, if you want to experience some excellent storytelling, go to stormpaco.home.blog and read Stormbreaker's stuff. Yeah. Give feedback, read your stuff. I have things there. Some is stories, some is just random ramblings of nonsense that apparently is helpful to people. So go check it out. <laughs> And uh, as we always, thank you to all our listeners for all your support, even if it's just a review on 
iTunes. I was over there the other day and saw we have some really good reviews there. So we appreciate it because it helps. Sharing the show, giving us good reviews and feedback helps. The various algorithms get us out there and, and we that that's its own special kind of help that we appreciate. But with that, thank you for everybody for, for listening and we'll talk to you next time around the fire. There's no wrong.